This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am the narrator and author of Mindframe, David Moten, and with me as always is Brent Van Tassel, the producer extraordinaire who helps make the show happen um, in every way uh, possible. Um, I wanted to say a little bit at the top of the show, uh, we, we launched Mindframe because it was a, a novel, a series of novels that I've been working on for quite a while. And as I said, way back at the beginning, I wanted to uh, release it in audio form that's free for people to get just because COVID sucks and everybody's stuck at home and worried and stressed. And I really appreciate, you know, the work of, of late night comedians who would still record the show from home and all that stuff because it gave people a little bit of hope. And that was sort of the, the reason that we wanted to make Mindframe happen. And uh, recently we've had a bigger lull than either of us would have liked to have. Um, largely due to the fact that, ironically, we started the podcast because of COVID, and then we had to stop for about a month because of COVID, because Brent and I both caught COVID-19, and we've both uh, uh, kicked it, hopefully, fully, and we're uh, back in the booth, and we're back recording. So I just wanted to say something to thank you all for uh, continuing to listen, um, and to just say I hope you're all safe, and uh, I hope that Mindframe in some way can distract you from the madness that is our world, be it uh, the pandemic or any number of other ills. Um, hopefully, looking to the future will help you uh, ignore some of the badness in the present. So um, anyway, as always, uh, we are uh, Podbelly Original, and we are a member of the Podbelly Podcast Network. If you go there, you can find some great shows to listen to, as well as some uh, educational content on podcasting. And also, as always, um, if you like the show and you want to hear some sort of uh, behind the scenes information of, of what's happening, what inspired me to write certain sections, the technology, discussions of science fiction in general, then you can get our sit down episodes, which are um, exclusively for our patrons uh, just for a dollar. So if you go in um, for only a dollar at my uh, patreon.com slash mindframe podcast, uh, you can become a member of the of the Patreon group and support us and get those extra podcasts. It's an extra podcast for every single episode, so it sort of doubles the content if you're into it. So this chapter, we revisit Grim Bolivar. In the last Grim chapter, he finally ended up uh, having his romance come to fruition with Penny, and they fell asleep together in the lighthouse on the Prospect property. This time, we visit them right where they left off the very next morning, and we see a very interesting week in the life of Grim Bolivar. So I hope you enjoy this episode of Mindframe. Chapter 28, Grim Bolivar, 2136. The sun did Grim a favor that morning, resting lazily behind a thick marine layer. As a result, the early sky was cold, breezy and gray, the weightless, thin sunlight that stretched into the lighthouse cast elegant shadows and filled the space with the blue of a mirrored lake. Silver, peaceful tones rooted the entire loft to a place of deep well-being. It summoned memories of endless hours of Graham at his grandmother's knee watching her paint the views. But that was decades ago. A war ago. Now, he was Grim. And Grim lay against Penny's back in the oversized bed breathing in the simple smell of her hair. The scent was plain but wonderful, just like the rest of this amazing woman. Grim wanted coffee, but even the act of reaching over for the phone, leaving a few inches of space between his chest and her back, seemed an impossible distance to travel. 
His skinterface was turned off since he didn't want anyone to monitor his bio-readings during sex. Plus which, Grimm thought the act of removing his hand from Penny's stomach to turn it on would have been a sin. Being nestled in the warmth of her behind filled Grimm with a Neolithic pleasure, the sense of being in a cave and being warm and being safe. Penny's breathing jumped a rhythm, ending the calming human metronome of slumber. She had just woken up. She purred and moved her body a feline stretch, and the movement added a sexual gravity to their proximity. Grim stirred. Penny must have felt it. She moved at the precise angle to accept him, and they were back in bliss. The slow strokes, the warmth, the completion. Within several intense minutes, they were both done, and the day was finally able to begin. Good morning, she said, when their breathing normalized, and she was facing him. I'd say so, Grim said with a grin, the thin sheet of sweat already drying on his scarred back. They both laughed, and Penny covered her mouth, looking as if she was in shock about what they'd done, some of it repeatedly, over the past dozen hours. Coffee, he asked her. Yes, please, with milk. What kind? I prefer cashew. Food? Starving. Grim turned on his skinterface and his melanin came to life. He swiped his forearm to summon a keypad. He texted to the kitchens and ordered a pot of coffee with cashew milk, fruit, fresh bread, breakfast potatoes, and fresh tomatoes. For two. He threw in some orange juice and turned his skin off again. They lay there, fingers flirting with each other, hands exploring newly partnered bodies, breathing, stealing the big blanket. It felt like mere seconds had passed when the door rang. He powered up his wrist and brought up the feet of the camera over the front door of the lighthouse loft. The low-res display of skin cells alternating between darker and lighter states showed a brown-on-brown -brown video of Bartholomew waiting with a food cart. Grim buzzed him in. Bartholomew was the main house butler at Prospect. He outranked anyone who should have been delivering this simple breakfast by several levels. Grim knew that the head butler would only bother himself with delivering this food if he thought special discretion was called for. Either Bartholomew or Yale wanted to keep Grimm's paramour a secret to the rest of Prospect. If it was Bartholomew's decision, then the man was just being hypervigilant and protecting Grimm from household rumors. Grimm so seldom had female companionship other than a quick tryst with a house courtesan that this was unusual. It wasn't unheard of, but the few times Grimm brought someone to the house, it spelled a relationship, not a one-night stand. However, if Yale ordered Bartholomew to come, then it spelled something more sinister. Grimm's brother was either sending a message or gathering intel, but probably both. The butler said, I'm sorry to have bothered you with entering, but I wanted to clear away some dishes from last night. This was coded talk. He only said he was sorry because it was not his decision to come. If Bartholomew decided something, he was never apologetic about it. He was the head butler, had helped raise Yale and Grimm, and his decision stood even in the face of a Bolivar. That apology meant Yale had sent him. Bartholomew rolled his cart towards the small rustic nook table that overlooked the ocean. The view there was impeccable. He then moved to last night's cart and piled up some of the dirty dishes and cold food with a silent velocity. He wheeled that cart near the door, but instead of leaving, he went back and poured two coffees, one with milk. He walked to the bathroom and returned with two heavy cotton robes and laid them at the foot of the bed, 
eyes looking at nothing in the room at all. The effect of a blind man. He nodded once at Grimm and silently exited. Grimm stood and slung a robe on his body and then helped Penny into hers. They moved to the table and Grimm served them each a plate while Penny started her coffee. He wondered what Yale was playing at, but then the thought dissolved like seafoam in the presence of Penny. Grimm said, The two of us might just be having the best morning on earth. Maybe not for all of human history, but definitely for today. The sun split through the marine layer and burst so strong it looked like an orbital energy weapon. Distinct beams of sun danced along the cliffs and breaking ocean, presaging a rare, sunny day for Los Angeles. Penny said, I don't know. I think Sophie Arnaz may have us beat. Last night, her only future was a labor camp. This morning, she's on the fast track to being a naval officer. Kinda cool, and it's all thanks to my man. Penny ate happily and then sat up as if electrified. Shit, work. I have to get to work and open the shop. We'll call it in, have someone else cover for you. She swung her head back and forth, probably trying to see where she dropped her clothes off last night. Then she said, nobody would get there on time, and the auto inventory will show that there are zero paintings and supplies, a big anomaly, and I'll be expected to make a massive order. I'll have catalogs to read through, collections to call on. I have a huge amount of work to do. Grimm started to protest out of sheer selfishness, but Penny cut him off. I have important work to do. I'm not opening the lariat or anything, but people need art. It's all some of us have left in this bland world. Grimm picked his trajectory thought and said, Penny, my dear, there is no art left in the shop. You can do all the orders and cataloging from here in our private lookout. Last night's purchases will be all chalked up to some Bolivar house deal that nobody understands or really wants to question. I'm certain we can throw a few chits at your colleagues to run the store, and until they get there, we can get Hayward to have the plaza employees man the shop. He could tell he hadn't won the argument, so he kept on. Or... Look at it this way. Remember when last night you asked if my family was like a mafia and I said no? Let's pretend I said yes. And you're kidnapped. Right here in a proper tower. And it's going to be a day before anyone pays your ransom. A full day stuck here with me and this view and these strawberries, he said, placing one in her mouth and then kissing her. One day, she said, acquiescing. Might be closer to two. I'll have to check with the big mob boss on ransom rates, Grimm said. They ate and let dull worry dissolve. By the middle of the second day, Grimm had convinced Penny to start a portrait of the view from Prospect's lighthouse. She painted in between the meals, a walk on the bluffs, lovemaking, time in a hot tub, and a lengthy, intimate shower. On the third day, he took a brief leave of Penny while she napped. He crept from the lighthouse so as not to disturb her sleep. He climbed down the lighthouse stairs and made his way back to the main buildings of Prospect and headed to the wing where his nephew Reese lived. Grimm hadn't seen him in days and that was an abnormality. He didn't want Reese to long for a reading session, only to find nobody there. He walked up the wing and greeted the two guards who were on watch every day and night. Security was abnormally tight around Reese, considering they were in the heart of Prospect but all such protocols were waived when Grimm or any main family member came to visit the young man. As was always the practice, he brought the guards each a coffee from an employee commissary around the corner and kept one for himself. 
He settled in, and the afternoon light made the room a living bronze sculpture. The view from here was one of the best in the house. It was Reese's room before his condition, and it continued to be now, much to the consternation of Nathaniel, who thought he should get this better room since Reese was comatose. But when it came to his nephews, Nathaniel was a shit, and Grimm always preferred the one in the bed. Grimm said, Hey there, nephew. Sorry I've been gone, but I've met someone, and we've been at it pretty heavy the last three days. Her name's Penny. She's an artist and an art dealer at the plaza. I was going to bring you a painting of grandmother's that she secured for me, but I completely forgot. It's in my rooms, and I've been in the lighthouse for the past few days. Doesn't matter anyway. Turns out the whole thing was a grift. Elise used the painting to start some long con on me. I'm sure she's been here, probably told you about Penny. Anyway, I'll bring her around, but didn't want to spring anything on you. Grimm set his coffee on the bedside table and swapped it with the antique silver comb sitting there. He fixed Reese's hair. No more bedhead, Grimm said, and kissed Reese on the top of his head. As a rule, Grimm and Elise would take turns finishing whatever books they were working through. They were reading a collection of Amiri Baraka poems in the original English when he visited last. He went to the table by the door to collect it and found only the bookmark sitting there. It was an ancient photograph of Grimm's great-grandfather sitting on a bench with Eleanor Gray. Eleanor was lit up with that smile of hers while staring straight at the lens, and as usual, his great-grandfather looked like he was about to murder the photographer. They both looked young. If the photo was there on the table, it meant that Elise had finished reading the Baraka and it was time for a new book. Looks like we ran out of book, buddy. Let's see what we've got. He scanned the bookshelves that were ripe with pre-war American literature. He settled on one called Speak Memory by Nabokov. He remembered almost buying Pale Fire at the plaza the other day, and so he picked this one. The game was he would read the book to Reese without naming the title or the author and ask Reese what it was from time to time. Eventually, Reese would indicate that he wanted to know, or to be honest, he'd shift his body or cough once or perform some other mundane physicality, and Grimm would interpret it as having meaning. He'd assume Reese finally wanted to know, and only then would he say what the book was. Grimm'd opened the hardback with a staticky creak and started reading. Chapter 1 The cradle rocks above an abyss, and common sense tells us that our existence is but a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. Although the two are identical twins, man, as a rule, views the prenatal abyss with more calm than the one he is heading for at some 4,500 heartbeats per hour. And so Grimm read for roughly 45 minutes. He normally came twice a day and stayed till the coffee got cold. Just now, though, he felt Penny would be waking up and wondered where he was. I got a jam, buddy. Penny's probably waking up to an empty lighthouse. I really like her, Reese. She's nothing like this family, and I dig that. And that I mentioned beautiful. I'll bring her down next week, all right? All right, love you, man, Grimm said, slipping the bookmark into the last page and setting the book down. He threw away his coffee cup. On the way out of the door, he said, she'll probably leave in the morning and I'll be back down here more often. He was wrong about the time frame. Grimm and Penny stayed in the lighthouse for four days. It was 96 hours of inside jokes, lovemaking, cuisine, and painting. It was just about perfect. But eventually life called, and the art store had to be restocked. There were goodbye kisses, comparisons of who loved each other more, 
and a few other honeymoon phase lover moments that Grimm and Penny were as proud of as they were embarrassed. She headed into work wearing new clothes that Grimm had bought for her since she hadn't been home in the better part of a week. The outfit looked like typical Penny clothes, but somehow upgraded by a Bolivar's touch. As the limo pulled away from the worker's entrance to the plaza, Grimm spied the Mo Yu. It was pulsing and clicking, changing its shape in the sky. Grimm decided that it was larger than it was the other night. He didn't know if it was puffed up to a greater size by stretching out its apertures, or if the global police force had merged a smaller MoU with this one for a more powerful platform. There were a total of 12 MoUs protecting Southern California, and this one was by far the smallest and least powerful. The car started moving. After a moment, Grimm pushed the button to talk to the driver. Miles, let's head to Santa Monica if you would. I'd favor a walk in some sunshine. No can do, Mr. Bolivar. The other Mr. Bolivar just called direct and said I'm to bring you back to Prospect. Family security matter, he said. Normally, Miles, an excellent driver and amazing bodyguard, would have a voice tinged with worry at the need to counteract Grimm's request, even if safety was on the line. This time, though, he had no such hesitation in his voice. He had gotten an order from Yale, and nobody dared counterman that. Upon returning home, the car passed by the main entrance and eventually came to a crawl at the gardens deeper onto the property. Meeting Yale outside and exposed was odd if there were truly a family security threat, not odd at all if Yale was just tugging at Grimm's leash about something. Miles let Grimm out and walked him up a lane nestled perfectly with manicured succulents that loved the breezy coastal cliffs of San Pedro. Miles stopped and stayed back once he rounded a corner and saw Yale sitting at a small white table taking in a light, late breakfast. Grimm joined Yale and sat for a view of the port, massive international cargo ships coming and going in a choreographed bustle. The ships looked like the round, glistening top of a 2,000-foot-wide jellyfish sticking out of the water. Beneath their translucent surface, you could see the little colored rectangles of cargo containers ranging in size from street safe to something that would swallow your entire neighborhood. These ships were the back-engineered cargo versions of the global police force's attack vessels beamed to Earth for the vote wars over a century ago. There are better views from the house, you know. Clear ocean, no traffic, Grimm said. There isn't a better view on the Earth, little brother. Comings and goings. Waves of commerce are far more important, rare, and beautiful in this universe than waves of water mindlessly battering the rocks. There are worlds out there inhabited by sentient beings with no liquid oceans. There are worlds out there inhabited by sentient beings with no oxygen, or with eyeless aliens who only survive near the heat vents at the bottom of great frozen seas. Worlds with aliens who live on thousand-foot trees and fly like hang gliders. However, there are no worlds containing sentience that exist without commerce. I promise you that. Trade, goods and logistics, regardless of the world or the race, that shit right there is universal and magnificent. Ebb and flow, Grim. Tidal gravity. Yale poured a coffee from a large French press and slid it to Grim. Yale added, and our children will live to see that perfect world in which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality, one vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit, 
in which all men will hold a share of stock, all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. They sat in silence for a while. Do you recognize that last part, Yale asked? Was it from a book? A movie. Father and I used to quote it to each other. It's bullshit, of course, but somehow still reflects the times. Yale was in a white and red striped silk pajama with a flat sun hat and shades. His cane, as always, matched his outfit. He ate toast with margarine and used a toothpick to spike only the blueberries out of a cup of mixed fruit while drinking sparkling water. I understand our niece took you for a bit of a ride the other day, Yale said, already holding up a finger to let Grimm know there was no reason to protest. The facts were in. He continued, She can play a strong long game. I know you always let sentiment for Elise cloud your ability to perceive her skills. You only see her as the darling little girl you'd push on the swing. She's not a Bolivar by blood, but she is by training. She's good for Nathaniel. Keeps him sharp. But she's bad for you, Graham, which is bad for us. Instead of me enjoying myself last Friday night at the party, and more importantly, helping critical relationships mature among certain members of the admin, I was busy trying to keep the GPF from doing a raid on a deviant lecture in some greasy pub near the docks. It's rather difficult to come up with a logical reason why the global police should not destroy a deviant meeting, but I gave them one. Grimm said, I didn't know it was going to be a deviant meeting, Yale. I was just following Penelope through the city to make sure she was safe. Safe? If that were true, you'd have just told Miles, and we'd have assigned a security detail to the tractor with a light assault drone. What is worrying, though, is that according to my intel, the nature of the meeting at the pub was clear to you about halfway into it. This means you had plenty of time to leave from your little alley perch before anyone else caught on to the deviants, before the GPF showed up to raid the place. Grimm said, they didn't raid the place. You're welcome. What was your source of intel, Grimm asked, finally taking a sip of coffee. Rooney, Yale said and paused. Grimm had never heard of anyone on the staff called Rooney. As usual, you failed to make acquaintances with important people, little brother. Rooney was the head deviant giving the lecture in your unctuous little bar. Grimm was surprised at this and said, You knew him? Then you knew this meeting was taking place. How do you know him? Do you supply him? Do we supply deviants now? Yale's eyes grew wide, and he tenderly wiped the margarine from his lips and placed his napkin on his lap. Grim Bolivar is back in the family business. Is that what this is? Because that sure feels like a family business type of question. I mean, on Friday, you gave out a very expensive academy permit and spent hundreds of art chits. Then there were clothes for your girlfriend, partialities given at the plaza covering her work shifts, and endless favors with the GPF. Don't worry, to them you were just doing intelligence on a deviant lead you thought you knew about. A Bolivar could get closer than an undercover cop could since you're a member of a fifth house. They bought it. But I don't buy it. You see, little brother, the things you've been doing, the equity you've spent, it is not insignificant. If it was being used to advance the family, to help the cause, then it was worth it. If it was used to get your dick wet and alleviate your brooding boredom, then that needs to stop. Yale had never spoken to Grimm like this before. Grimm had seen it hundreds of times on other people, the big talk down, but never to him. They sat in silence. 
Cargo ships moved in and out from the coast. Gulls hovered above, wondering if toast and berries were worth the trip down if surrounded by humans. So what is this, Yale? Yale said, this is a question. A simple question. Are you back in the family business or are you still retired? Because if you're in the business, there is clearly a way for you to capitalize on your recent behaviors. If you're still retired, then you overspent your family allowances by a good measure, and it won't happen again. You'll put everything at risk acting instead of thinking. Is Elise in trouble? Grim asked. Nobody's in trouble, Grim. I'm not father. You're not going to be grounded. There are merely actions and consequences. And yes, Elise will face some consequences for manipulating you into a deviant beer hall. That was a reckless risk of a major family asset. Grim felt his pulse rise and heat move to his face. Rage was just below his surface. Who the fuck did Yale think he was? He didn't own this family. They were co-inheritors of it when their father died. Grim was not going to be talked down to like a common house employee. Yale repeated, there will be consequences. In all actuality, her penalty will be more disclosure about our family. There's no going back from certain information. Of course she knows we're a fifth house, but mostly she only knows what the media or film say about us. This little stunt of hers means she's fully recruited. She'll be given a task and a role to play toward our goals. No more lounging about doing philanthropy. Unless, of course, the philanthropy has an end goal that helps our cause. I don't need you to answer me right now, Grim. I know you're livid. Instead of finishing this conversation, you would just as soon tear my head off, verbally or otherwise, and dash these dishes to shards with my cane. But think it over. Please get back to me before tonight when Penny returns and you remain distracted. Now, would you like some fruit or... Grim stood up and headed towards the house as he heard Yale finish his sentence saying, Do you plan to just storm off? That pissed him off even more. Only Yale could goad him to such a state of anger and then diminish the anger with a petty statement like storm off. It was either leave or smash Yale's smug little power-mad face in. Grim walked past Miles, who looked at the ground and took a step back from him. He went through the gardens and came up the back way of Prospect, climbing up the cliffs on an array of steep steps. He sat on the stairs nearest the lower back patio, which thankfully was empty. He tried to get a rein on his emotional state to control it, so it wouldn't control him. He sat and looked at the sea and forced his anger to subside. It quieted and gave way to where his logical brain was waiting. Surely this type of emotional suppression had long-term psychological consequences, but it was the nature of the family game. He first pondered the problem of why he was so upset. It wasn't because Yale had spoken to him that way. He ruled that out. His brother was right about the family equity Grimm had been spending lately. He didn't know the GPF had to be quelled. That would be expensive, with an added expense of Yale losing time from the party where more equity should have been generated for the family. Second, it wasn't about Elise playing him. Those things happened in this family. He slacked, let an emotional bond for Penelope, a bond he himself was unaware of until it was exposed to him, be abused. That only left one thing, it was the decision being forced upon him. Was he back in the family business? That simple question was why he was upset. Yale was right. 
If he was doing things like he did last week, spending family equity, it needed to be spent on the family itself. It needed to be spent on the proliferation of their fifth house. Grimm was mad that he had to choose between the retired state he'd lived in since the war with the McGleeches ended or getting fully back into work. The family business was predicated on the support of WorldGov. The seeming flaw in the way WorldGov's economy functioned was that it relied on fifth houses, black markets that could help people trade chits. Almost everyone on earth earned the same amount, but no two people had the same desires. Trade was necessitated. But the trade was not an afterthought or a mistake. It was built into the system from the first day after the vote war ended and the first world vote was cast. Grimm's great-grandfather just happened to be one of the five people around the world in a position to seize upon the opportunity, so the Bolivar House was established. The fifth houses were just as important to WorldGov as the World Navy, the Admin, the GPF, or the Messengers. It was a fifth gear in the clockworks that spun toward the Lariat being constructed. Seven years, they estimated, before it would open. Seven more years of upvoting and labor camps and corrupt admin dillying courtesans and striking deals that should be illegal according to the world vote. Seven more years of Bolivars rigging votes, taking chits from the population to help them get nicer soap or better education or finer clothes. These were not native thoughts to Grimm's mind. He could still feel his pulse thrumming in his chest. And every time a layer of logical thought covered his anger down like cobblestones, Grimm's heart tossed them aside. This morning, Grimm couldn't control his wrath. He couldn't in good conscience support the fifth house any more than he could stand to look at the smug smile of a governor getting a blowjob at a party. The bottom sliver of humanity. They carried the weight of the entire human race on their calloused, rib-worn backs. If this type of corruption and downvoting and waste of important human lives was what it took to open the lariat, then fuck the lariat. Let it fall into the sun and burn. Grimm thought of the words of Henry David Thoreau that were quoted by Rooney. If the machine of government is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then I say break the law. The truth of those words fueled Grimm's core. He realized as the sun cracked the sky with its warmth that he'd been wandering. He was lower down the hill where the cave started. He wanted to go down and sit in one of the caves that bubbled with ocean water, but he was too upset. He needed calm and thought and logic. The best place for him to find such peace was with his nephew, Reese. He could read to him and find his own center and then contemplate whether he was back in the family business or not. He climbed back up the hill and slid in through an access door to one of the sub-basements. Most people didn't know all the entrances and tricks of Prospect because they hadn't been raised playing on its grounds. Prospect read Grimm's biosignature and the small light where a doorknob should be shifted from orange to green. He walked to the door, and it slid open. Spiderwebs broke as the door moved, and he wondered how long it had been since anyone had come into Prospect this way. He entered into a small, windowless coat room. It had towels and robes and clean shoes and slippers tucked into cubbies. There were benches to sit on, assuming you were wet from ocean or rain. There were also picnic baskets loaded with bottled waters and sealed foodstuff and wine. This was certainly here in case a Bolivar needed to use niceties to seal a deal with someone deep into the property. He took a bottle of water and downed it in three great swallows. 
He walked through the doorway into the hall. There was nothing down this far but storage. Rare and expensive things that had been traded for chits and were sitting here like a millionaire's pawn shop or a voracious dragon's treasure hoard. There were no actual doors on the rooms down here since it was virtually impossible for anyone other than a high-ranking member of the house to access this part of the building. Just open, dark rooms filled with expensive stuff. Grim passed through the halls, and as he finally reached the elevator, he paused. Something wasn't right, and it took a moment for him to piece it together. One of the rooms he had passed did have an actual door. A secure door with no knob. He doubled back to it and stood in front of the frame. He looked at the light. It was red instead of orange, a color that meant security lockdown or emergency. Grim waited for the light to turn green as Prospect read his biosignature. It remained a steady red. So whatever was in this room was a secret Yale was keeping from Grim. Surely there were those, dozens of secrets, had mushrooms since Grim retired. He didn't need to know everything anymore. But in light of Yale's attitude this morning, and in light of the burning rage Grimm still couldn't extinguish from his heart, this little obstacle just wouldn't do at all. Grimm went back down the hall to a machine shop that was down here for maintenance on the elevator and one of the old boilers before it was replaced with some source of hot water beamed down by the messengers. Inside the tool shop, he found a pry bar. He also grabbed a large mallet to go with it. He found himself back in front of the strange door. He thought about knocking, but knew nobody was inside, just some inert keepsake that Yale had traded for a favor. Odd that it wasn't in one of the house vaults instead of lower storage, but that made him wonder even more. Grim wedged the pry bar into the gap between the door and the jam just above the lock. He used the mallet to strike the end of the bar, driving it in deeper. Then he wrenched with all his might and felt the door frame crack a bit. He moved the bar and did it again, and then again. As he was making progress on the door, the light suddenly turned green. It swung open, and a man in medical scrubs stood in the door. It startled Grimm enough that he dropped the mallet and got a double grip on the pry bar to use as a weapon. Mr. Bolivar, Mr. Bolivar, the man said, almost at a scream. Grimm realized it was Dr. Reagan. It was Reese's personal physician who lived in the workers' housing on the grounds. You don't need to break down the door. The system didn't give you access, but I'm sure that's just an oversight. Please, come in before someone else sees. Dr. Regan stood back, and Grimm picked up the mallet and entered. The space smelled of a hospital. Antiseptic cleaning solution, bland food, overlaundered bed sheets. Inside, he saw a large room filled with medical beds. He counted 20 in total. In each lay a human with what looked to be the same crippling condition as his nephew, Reese. Their bodies were twisted, still, and thin, and Dr. Reagan was apparently tending to them as well. Grim walked to the closest bed to him. A woman lay there, skinny, with clavicles that looked like something from a dig site. He saw a metal cable was inserted into the base of her skull just above the spine. His eyes tracked the cord across the room, to a large ceramic bowl that was about four feet high and four feet wide. It was filled with water that was constantly agitated as if by a small tide. The cord plugged into a slot on one side of the bowl. He saw other cords plugged into the bowl, one for every person laying in a bed. They were all hardwired from what looked like their central nervous systems into this strange, thick bowl. 
It was made of a gleaming white substance that looked not unlike porcelain. The bowl had all the extraordinary non-aesthetic trappings of a back-engineered alien technology. But what was it? And why was it connected to the 20 in the basement? The fuck is this? Grimm asked, ready to throttle the doctor. Please be calm. It's all according to the plan, Mr. Bolivar. Trust me. I know you've never visited us down here. Just like your nephew, their psyamps are stable and their portal accuracy is higher than ever. We found a new nutrition shake to which they're all responding positively. They've never been healthier. I assure you, they will be ready when the time comes. Grimm was shocked to silence. What had they done to these people? What had they done to his beloved nephew, Reese? What was a psyamp? Grimm felt his already substantial rage doubling and asked the only question left in his mind. They'll be ready when the time comes for what? Dr. Regan answered with a tone that suggested the answer couldn't be more obvious. He said simply, Why, the overthrow, Mr. Bolivar. And with that, we leave the life of Grim Bolivar for another few chapters until we come back around to his story. As always, if you like my writing, you can track down my other book, 181 Pine. You can find it at mindframepodcast.com, as well as the fiction of Zach Smith, the co-host on the sit-down episodes that you can get if you join patreon.com backslash mindframepodcast to become a patron. As always, we are a member of the Podbelly Podcast Network, which is a great network of shows that you can listen to including shows such as The Rock and Roll Beer Guy and At Least There's Coffee, both of which are very entertaining. Highly, highly recommend them. Um, check them out if you want some new podcasts to listen to. You can find those at podbelly.com. And one of the biggest ways that you can support us and that you can help spread the word about the show, if you like it, if you think someone else might like it, uh, give us some love on social media because it goes a really long way towards making a show grow organically. So if you want to reach out to us on Facebook, you can get us at Mindframe Podcast. On Twitter, you can find us at Mindframe Pod. And on Instagram, we are the Mindframe Podcast. So thank you for listening. We'll see you um, on our next episode. And as always, remember, the Lariat is closing.